Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and in this segment I'm speaking with Stephen Craig, VP of Exploration for El Tigre Silver Corp. Steve, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you, Alice. I look forward to speaking to you today. You've accomplished quite a bit during your career as a geologist. I've been around quite a bit. I've got 38 years of experience in the mining exploration field. I grew up in a mining town in Colorado. My dad was a miner, so by golly, when I grew up, I decided to go be a geologist. I got an advanced degree at Colorado State University. That degree was in economic ore deposits. So you could say that I'm pretty much an expert on most ore deposits in the world. In my early career, I started out with Kennecott Exploration and uh, ended up running the entire Nevada program for Kennecott, where my group discovered many small deposits, of which a lot of them are held by junior companies that are doing something with them today. After being with Kennecott for all those years, Kennecott was taken out by Rio Tinto, and as you know, that is the world's largest gold mining company. They started to focus on other things other than gold, so I left and went to work for a couple of other junior companies that focused on Nevada exploration. One of those acquired four projects, of which three of them became small mines, and one of them is going to become a mine in the near future. My last company, I went back to one of those projects and took it all the way to production. When I left that company, I went to El Tigre, and Stuart Ross came to me, and he said, you know, he's got this great vein system down in Mexico, and after I took a look at it, I was extremely pleased and very excited that move on to El Tigre Silver Corp. With that, I've been there about a year and a half, and I spent a lot of time down there, and we're pulling a lot of things together. How big is this vein system at the El Tigre project? Well, there's a real history to El Tigre. It was discovered in the late 1890s. The mine was put into production in 1903, and it operated until 1938. During that time, it produced anywhere from 70 to 75 million ounces of silver, 
from ores that averaged about 40 ounces to the ton silver. In Canadian terms, that's about 1,400 grams per ton. So that's pretty rich. And it also produced gold byproduct, about 350,000 ounces, but the average grade for the gold was a quarter ounce. And that, in Canadian terms, is about eight and a half grams per ton. So this thing operated for a long time, produced a lot of silver, and we've got it today. And what it did produce at the time was anywhere from 800 to 1.2 million tons of ore. It's hard to get a handle on how much we have there, but that big tailings pile is still on site. So there's a large tailings pile on site that you're going to be bringing into production, providing revenue for the company, correct? Yeah, we feel pretty good after doing a pretty extensive evaluation of the tilling pile. We conducted surface sampling, auger drilling. With these samples, we then conducted metallurgical test work just to see how much silver was in the material and to see how much we could get out. So those results were pretty darn good. Following that work, we had an engineer design a processing flow sheet. Some of you may remember, if you were following the company, that we were looking at that leaching process. Well, our test work indicated that wasn't very efficient, so we then designed a process called an agitation leach, where we put the material into big tanks with cyanide solution to dissolve the gold and silver, and our recoveries that we would get from that process make the whole project very attractive. So what we're getting with this agitation leach process is about 79% of the silver and about 94% of the gold. Now that's pretty darn good. And with an average grade of the silver going into this plant of anywhere between 2.4 to 2.8 ounces per ton of material and about 009 to 01 ounces per ton gold, we're getting a lot of it. So that's going to produce quite a bit of revenue at the end of the month. Now, I understand that you believe that these tailings will be providing a mine life of about 10 years. Is that right? Yes, it is. We're anticipating, though, modifying the plant. So by putting more material through every month, our original design was around 250 tons per day. We can easily add parts to the process and an increase that throughput. So the more you increase the throughput, then of course the mine life will be less. But obviously while you've got silver and gold in those tailings, you want to get it out as quick as you can because that's where the value is today's revenue versus tomorrow's revenue. But yes, with a mine life of anywhere from 8 to 10 to 12 years, we're looking at something that's going to be very good for LT grade silver over a long term. With that type of grade in the tailings alone, now those tailings come from veins where production has been in place in the past. Who knows what you have in the ground there at the LT grade project? Well, yeah, let me talk about that because that's really the exciting part of this whole project. You know, the tailings is to me a short life. Know, 10 years, but we have a project up there that could go many years. Now, remember, the old-timers had this thing running for 35 years. Well, in our drilling program that we have underway and with additional drilling up there, we're finding that the high-grade veins have a low-grade halo. Well, gee, that's nice. So now we're starting to explore for and hopefully in the future try to develop a very large mineralized zone of low-grade linchpin on these high-grade veins. Now, the high-grade veins are still up there. I have records that suggest that even though, like the El Tigre vein, which is a big producer, had 
a lot of underground development, the old general manager of the mine reported that basically they only took out 30 to 40 percent of the ore. So that means there's 60 to 70 percent of that high-grade vein material still left in the mine, and, and that would definitely be a nice grade kicker to low-grade material that we would mine in an open pit if we ever get that far around these veins. Now, the vein structures up there also probably cover five miles of strike line, and there's multiple veins. Just in the main district, we have the El Tigre, the Zeitz Kelly, and the Sui. These veins go under cover, and that's going to be an objective of mine is to explore where they go undercover, but they come out in what we call the northern area, and the veins up there have different names, but one of those veins that I like very much is the Protectora vein system, and what we've discovered is that there's really four veins where this one vein is, and there is some past production, produced three million ounces of silver at an average grade of 100 ounces to the ton silver. So that area is very exciting. I see where we're going to be hitting a lot of mineralization, both high grade and low grade, and got ideas where we need to go to continue the infill of these vein systems, and uh, I'm pretty darn excited about it. I'm just amazed at what I keep seeing every time I go out there. And it's open pitable. You don't have to go deep for quite some time. That's correct. I would say that the old mine workings are pretty unsafe, so if we can just take them out with uh, a big shovel and a big truck, then <laughs> all the better. I worry about safety for our guys. We're very conscious about doing everything right out there because I don't want any injuries or anything else. So by operating an open pit and being very careful, you know, we'll develop quite a bit of revenue for the company downstream and provide a lot of jobs for the people of Mexico. So to reiterate, open pit mining is a great deal safer than having to build massive underground tunnels. That's correct. It's a lot easier. You can do everything in volume. As you know, any good big gold mine nowadays has big trucks. They haul a lot of material, process a lot of material, but that's in the future. We've got a lot of drilling to do, and I figure that every drill hole is going to be worth its weight in gold and silver because for a geologist, we're playing in a place where every drill hole is going to hit mineralization. I like that. I hate drilling dead holes. What does this mean economically for the local population in Mexico? As you may know, Mexico is a poor country. We do have nearby, though, two very large porphyry copper mines with people that have mining and processing experience. I think any new mine in the area is going to help tremendously with the payroll and to help the local people. You know, as you know, with any mining operation, for every job you have at the mine, then that affects another five or six or ten other jobs in an area. So I see this really moving the economy of northern Sonora along quite well, just like the big copper mines did. Why do you, as a principal in the company and shareholder, think that El Tigre's share price at 25 cents is potentially undervalued. Just looking at what we have and looking at the general market, more recently when we had this downturn in junior companies, I have stocks in other companies that have gone down half and a quarter of, of their value. I expect those to come back, but what I've liked about El Tigre is that we pretty much stayed level during this turn. I think as we develop some revenue as we start reporting some pretty good drilling numbers and potentially some new discoveries. Uh, I definitely see our share price turning and heading for the high side, which I think 
all of our investors would enjoy seeing and along with the people in the company. Steve, again, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today, and it was great to meet you in New Orleans last week at the conference. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Alice. Yes, I look forward to seeing you at another show down the road somewhere. I've been speaking with Stephen Craig, the Chief Geologist and VP of Exploration for El Tigre Silver Corps. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. This segment has been sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. You know, you could become as smart as me by logging on to ellismartinreport.com. This is Ellis Martin, and I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with Pavlos Panagopoulos and Kevin Hudak with the Financial Network, and we're having a discussion this afternoon. Kevin and Pavlos, welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you, Ellis. Pleasure. Now, this is just a few days after the election. The election perhaps didn't go the way of half the people in this country, and it went the way of the other half. Do you think that the winning part of the population right now, those that voted for President Obama, how do you think the election is going to affect those that are involved in the financial world to begin with. Pablos? Um, well, we've seen the market the last few days falter, and today it's kind of flat, but there's a lot of uncertainty going on. Clients, of course, are nervous about the upcoming fiscal cliff and what's going on in the political situation, and so we in the financial service business are also nervous as well about what's going to happen, uh, repercussions of regulatory legislation that may be coming down the pipe. I just saw something about Elizabeth Warren, that Wall Street's uh, nervous about her and her election to uh, the Senate. So lots of issues, not only the market faltering, but also regulatory issues as well. Kevin? My client's biggest concern are the taxes. They know the taxes are going up. They're not quite sure how much and when exactly. That's where Congress and the president have to deal with the fiscal cliff issues. But they know they're going up. They just don't know exactly where and how. And so some of them are looking at what do we do in the next seven weeks before the end of the year to just that as best we can. Is the conception amongst perhaps your clients and people that are investing to hold off before they make any investment decisions? After the election, we're thinking there's going to be anywhere from five to 10 days of normalcy is not quite the right word, being flat like today was in the market. But then once people get a handle on Congress being back, the rhetoric coming out of Washington, and then we'll start seeing movement, I believe. And if they can come up with a compromise, the fiscal cliff issues go away for a while. We'll probably go into the new year, I would think, fairly close to being flat or up a little bit. But if there's contention on the TV at night, we could see everything they're worried about for the first week of January happening in December because people not waiting until January to what actually happens. So they'll start doing things earlier. So we could have the effects of the fiscal cliff as early as a little after Thanksgiving in the middle of December. They're just unknowns. And so that's where we're going to have to just play it as it comes. You know, Pablo, the phrase fiscal cliff is a phrase we've heard of for quite some time, but it's now the catchphrase that appeared the day after the election. So that's been the thing that everybody's been talking about, and that's what's on everyone's mind, the fiscal cliff. It is definitely a known 
situation has been out there for quite a long time and we've seen the budget impasse and we've seen we're now at 16 trillion dollars in debt and, and climbing and so that information has been out there for quite a long time but now it's at the forefront i did hear about exit polls saying that individuals were worried about the fiscal cliff and thought that the government should try to tighten their belt and try to cut the budget but when it came to would you be willing to tighten your belt the exit polls showed that individuals were interested ellison you tightening your belt but not their belt. It seems like it's kind of a counterproductive thing in that they're looking at what the problems are, but nobody wants to belly up to the bar and pay the piper. And that's what we're seeing now. Do you expect any kind of continued sell-off? It's come a bit flat during the last couple of days, but I would think uh, if you're cashing up and cashing out, that that becomes a tax liability, does it not? Yes, you do have tax liability if you have gains on the sale. But what people are looking at is anywhere from four and a half to five percent less if they do the sale now compared to they do it January 1 because they know that the taxes are going up. And so just depending on how they're adjusting their personal portfolios and what they're doing in their own lives, that's where this business has always been and always will be a personal business because everyone's a little bit different. So we could see a, a dramatic tax sell-off this year that we've, we, we haven't seen for years. It just depends on how the rhetoric goes, in my opinion, from Congress to the president and how it plays on the evening news. If we get a contentious president and a contentious Congress saying, no, we're not going to do it this way, we're not going to do it that way, or we are just going to let it ride, that's when you're going to have a lot of problems, and I think they'll happen fairly quick if that's what happens next week. The fiscal cliff's been a known deal since March or April, but every time someone brought it up, they said, we are going to wait until the election is over and then we'll deal with it. The problem is we've got seven weeks to the new year and we're staring at the holidays in between. So basically we've got a little over four or five weeks and that's it. And so this has got to come together fairly quick. And it's a question of, are they willing to do that? And most people, I think, you know, yes, they are see the problems that we're having in this country, but we're a society of immediate gratification and they're not really wanting to tighten their belts. I mean, whether it's Congress or the president, it seems like it's easier just, as they say, to kick the can down the road or extend the fiscal cliff out further seems a lot less painful than having to deal with the problems and the issues. I mean, again, we're at $16 trillion in debt and climbing and there eventually will be an end to that. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the cliff is there and you got Thelma and Louise, and I don't know who's Thelma, Congress, and who's Louise, uh, <laughs> Barack Obama, but you know, we just hope that they don't just decide to go over that fiscal cliff. But you know, so far, hopefully cooler heads prevail. So January 1st, or the few days before that, sort of feels like Y2K. Exactly. As a matter of fact, the analogy that was used by one investment company was that the fiscal cliff will be a non-event. It's like Y2K. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's what I think, but it has been out there and been talked about for quite a long time. Again, what has to be done in order to avoid the fiscal cliff is very painful. And like I said, we live in a society of immediate gratification and individuals don't want to have to pay higher taxes don't want to have to tighten their belt or do what they need to do, even in their own household, let alone the government wanting to cut back. Hasn't this president been good for Wall Street? It depends how you define good. Well, the market's near 13,000 compared to what it was uh, at the end of 2008. Actually, if you look at the numbers that I've seen, in when the president on Election Day 2008, we were within 100 points of where we were on Election Day 2012. Same thing with the S&P. 
And so the things that have changed is gold's up almost 960 or $70. Silver is up in a higher percentage. I don't remember exactly where it was in 08. With the amount of money coming in with QE1, 2, and 3, it has brought the Dow up from, it bottomed out somewhere around... 666. Six, that was the S&P. Right. But the, the Dow was in those kind of ranges too. So yes, it's come up four or 5,000 points, but it depends on where you start the gauge and how you gauge it. If you're looking at the bottom in March of 2009, yeah, we've had a heck of a run. Same thing with the S&P. It's come from 666 all the way to a little over 1400 about four days ago. So those are wonderful percentage rises. The problem is where are we going to go now in we're post-election? He gets inaugurated on the 20th of January, and then three or four months into the springtime, that's when you're going to see exactly what happens with this. And if they can deal with the fiscal cliff, and move forward, then you're looking at compromises in Congress where how do we adjust the tax code? How do we do the budget to where we're not running one and a half, two trillions in deficit and then three or four trillion off budget? Because that's the part everyone forgets about. The wars both in Afghanistan and Iraq were off budget. How you can do that, I'm not quite sure, but that's what it is. I wish you could run my household that yeah, way. I was gonna take say, it off budget, but I guess you, we can't do if that. If you could take your household budget, triple it, be able to write the checks for everything you wanted to do. That's exactly what the U.S. government's doing. And we can't do it personally. But as a government, we can, or they can, or however you want to put it. So it's something that's going to have to be dealt with because one day, and that we don't know if it's real close or pushed out in time, and that is when the rest of the world refuses U.S. dollars. That's when this whole thing collapses in on top of itself. We're not there yet. Let's say Europe continues the way it's going and the dollar continues to absorb the decline of the euro. We've got quite some time yet before the dollar becomes a liability and gold becomes worth more than it actually is. Right. There's going to be eventually an end game, and right now the dollar is the best-looking house in the ugly neighborhood. For now, you know we're able to continue to print money, and the world is absorbing it. It's because our currency seems to be better than the euro, and so our currency seems to be holding its value better than some of the other currencies. But if you look at the price of gold, gold has basically, like Kevin was saying earlier, my son is 11 years old, and when he was born, gold was at uh, $264 an ounce, and today it's around 17.24, right? Yeah, so give or take, give or take a few bucks. And of course, uh, at the same time period, the S&P 500 has gone nowhere. Yes, they're able to you know keep, continue to kick the can down the road, but eventually... Um, like Kevin said, if they no longer accept dollars exchange for real assets, that could be a problem, and the dollar could falter. In 1979, when I got out of college, they were talking about we're at the end game of the U.S. dollar, and they've been able to get through all of the stuff of 81, 82. The markets took off, and we've had uh, a 30-year run that's been borderline unbelievable in the stock markets, the bond markets, those kind of things. And so they've been able to push this off 30 some odd years that I've been watching it. And so they may be able to push it off another 5, 10, 20. We just don't know. However, there will be a day and every and throughout history, there's not been a fiat currency that has lasted. And so it will come to an end. We just don't know when. And they can keep pulling rabbits out of the hat. Now, Kevin, you and I have come across each other in various places in North America, usually at mining conferences, where gold and silver stocks. What would you say to the potential gold bug at $1,700 an ounce? The one thing that's overriding the entire philosophy, as far as I can see, is 
I get this question all the time. Should I buy gold now? And where do you think it's going? And I'm saying that every day that you can buy gold is an opportunity because until the U.S. government quits spending money it doesn't have and lives inside its own budget, the price of gold and silver will continue to go up because there'll be more dollars every day in the system. Now, when you put that with the worldwide, every major currency in the world is inflating and inflating their currency. And so as you do that, the price of gold is going up in yen, it's going up in yuan, it's going up in sterling, it's going up in the euro. And so there's a lot of considerations going on, but like Pablo said, there's uh, five major currencies in the world, and right now the U.S. dollar looks to be the better dressed one. But that doesn't mean it's not fiat. I mean, it's still based on confidence. I think there's a difference between ideal money, it's ideal money and real money. Real money is something that you know holds its value and is a storage of value. You look at gold and silver throughout the ends of time, gold and silver has held its value throughout history, even dating back to the ancient Greeks, they ended up doing fiat currency as well. And so there's no, been no fiat currency throughout the eons of time that has held up like gold and silver have always been a storage of value. And I consider really precious metals as being more of nature's currency um, versus man-made currency or what I call ideal money. It's ideal money is something that a government says, here's what a dollar is worth or a yen is worth or a yuan is worth. Um, that's ideal money. But real money is something that holds its value. I mean, take a look at what's happening in a hurricane in New Jersey. You know, if you have gasoline and it's storage, that's money. So, you know, they may be selling gasoline at $8 a gallon on Craigslist. That's dollars. So the gasoline is the real asset and the real currency, not the paper greenback that they're trading for that gasoline. So if this were Argentina or Zimbabwe... Or maybe the United States someday, if there's a currency collapse, for certain silver or gold is real money. If you work it backwards, and that's what I do, and that is, if you take this back to 1911, before we had a Federal Reserve, the value of the U.S. dollar compared to the value of the U.S. dollar today, it's today's currency against the 1911 value is two cents. So it's lost 98% of its value of what it could purchase. You heard about the nickel loaf of bread, the penny candy, the all of those things that was turn of the century up into 1920s. Well, if you look at what it costs today, that's where you get the two cents versus the current dollar. And it's, it's phenomenal. It works out in almost everything we've seen. What are your thoughts about commodity stocks right now, precious metals? The commodity stocks, once again, you've got to look at something that will hold value. Gold and silver have always been the go-to money throughout history. That's not arguable. It's just the way it is. Then you add things like the soft commodities, food. They're always in demand because I don't know about you, but I like to eat two or three times a day. And right now, we don't have the greatest food supply worldwide. You can't, you can't eat your cell phone, right? Again, well, you know, they no. talk about the, the Arab Spring uprising and Twitter and freedom of speech. Really, I think it's hunger that drives people to do extraordinary things like revolution or what have you, because when prices go up, whether it's energy or food or other commodities, it drives people into adverse situations. Okay, we're in New Mexico, an agricultural state, a state with potash in it, near Carlsbad, near Hobbs. Where I grew up. (laughs) Where you grew up. Home of the cavemen. Based on that truth, a lot of the Arab Spring was related to food. In fact, that 
people can't afford to buy it and, and what have you. Uh, are you looking at, on behalf of your clients, for soft commodity possibilities for investment? Yes. Actually, up until two years ago, to buy into the soft commodities, you almost had to be in the futures market because that's where it was all done. But in the last two years, we now have tradable ETFs that are very easy to trade. Liquidity on them is very good. And so you can buy corn, you can buy soybeans, you can buy wheat, you can buy a lot of different things as an ETF and not have to worry about timestamps, you know, future deadlines and all those things because that is all managed by the ETF. And so you can buy uh, into, say, the soybeans and uh, just watch the idea of what the soybean market's going to do. So these aren't futures, these are ETFs. These are ETFs, and you can buy them right on the New York Stock Exchange. It's very, very easy these days compared to two years ago. You can buy closed-end funds that hold precious metals yeah. as well. So there's other, not only ETFs, but closed-end mutual funds that trade on the American Stock Exchange that are um, and been around years. They trade as like ETFs, but things like GLD and SLV, which are not my two favorites, CEF and GTU in Canada are both gold and silver and gold, and CEF has been here since 1983. So it has a track record and you can follow what it's done over that time period. So you're actively putting some of your clients into these ETFs? Yes, no question about it. And they've done well over the years? Exceptionally well. Including my own personal investments and children's college funds. Um, I told you my son Patrick, he's 11 and have put in investments for both my kids. And of course they've done well because of the increase in the price of the precious metals over the last 10, 12 years. I mean, they've been a bull market in gold for the last 12 years. And this year probably will be the 13th year going up, whereas the stock market has been virtually flat for the last you know, 12 years. You also have to remember that the 20 years in front of that was absolutely terrible for the precious metals. In 1980, it was sitting at $850 on gold and silver was right under $50. It went all the way back down to $257, I believe, on gold and then $3.70 or 60 cents on silver. And since 2002, it has broken out and has just gone 10, 20, 30% a year, depending on the year. But the last 10 years, especially, the precious metals have just had an unbelievable run. And normally, commodities have anywhere from a 17 to 24 year run. They run in those kind of cycles. So we still have a ways to go. Yeah, even in my hometown, Carlsbad, I mean, the 80s were a depression. I mean, oil hit $10 a barrel. And today, unemployment in the Carlsbad Hobbs area is probably 3%. And hotel rooms are, can't, you can't get them. And rent for a single bedroom apartment might be around $1,500. There's always a bull market. During the 80s, when I was going to college and studying economics, the early 80s, the professors talked about the bull market. And I was thinking, gosh, Carlsbad's a disaster. What bull market are you talking about? But I remember the 70s where they would go to my dad's restaurant and order T-bone steaks. And my friends were leaving high school to get $20 an hour to work on the oil rigs. Um, that's happening, of course, in the Dakotas with the Bakken. And what I try to tell investors is there's always opportunities out there. You have to look for them. One person's bear market may be another person's bull market. You also have to look at the southern, eastern New Mexico area. You've got companies like Arena out of France, the U.S. government, and there's another big one. We're looking at the uranium enrichment facilities, hazardous waste disposal facilities, besides the natural potash that's there. And Hobbs and Lovington are turning into a fairly hot spot at the moment. This is sort of a standalone oasis, considering what's happening across the board in the U.S. Considering those two particular places geographically and what most people would think paradise is, yeah, it's turning into paradise eventually because the money that's drawn there, whenever you bring the money, everything else will follow, including the infrastructure, 
the uh, hotels, the everything that goes with it, the shopping centers, all of it will be there eventually. Fast food restaurants. I mean, everything is, is springing up over there. The area is called Little Texas, where I'm from. And so, you know, you see Texas, their budget situation and what's going on in Texas versus the place that you're from. I want to call it the land of fruit and nuts, but California, Be you know, careful. maybe, um, and I, well, you're, you're formerly from there as well. Basically, you're seeing states like Texas and the Dakotas doing very well and other places like California and the East Coast suffering. So are you looking toward energy stocks now, mid-tier companies, small-cap energy companies? Because one of the things that I know about that end of the resource sector is, you know, you, you drill a hole, you have oil, you, you can use it as revenue right away. It's not necessarily the case with, with a mining company. I've been putting my clients into the integrated oil companies plus the natural gas companies. We're looking at yield, not only the capital gains on something like ExxonMobil, which is paying a little over 4%, but there's a few, maybe a handful of natural gas companies out of southern Canada that have paid 5 6 7% dividends, and it's been consistent for years and years and years. And so it's a way of diversifying clients' money out of the United States dollar into something a little more stable, the Canadian dollar, because it's a resource economy. And it spreads risk because we're not all sitting in one currency. And so you can look at those. There's a handful of natural gas companies there. There's a handful of major oil companies there, let alone the major oil companies in the United States. There's also natural gas companies in southern Texas that pay wonderful dividends. So when I see you out on the road, what are you looking for? What's your goal? My goal basically is to put clients where their money can work for them, and we're looking at risk-reward. And that's what the entire investment business is all about. You're going to have to take risks, but you're looking at the risk-reward ratios, and what looks like a good risk today can change tomorrow. And then we look at the reward to see, is it worth the risk? And so that's basically, in a nutshell, what my business is all about. And it doesn't matter if it's mining or natural gas or oil or foodstuffs or pick something. If we can find something wonderful in pharmaceuticals, I'll go after it. It's just a question of being very, very careful and looking at the risk-reward. And I'll concur with what Kevin said. We're always looking at being diversified, not making any one bet on any one commodity or soft commodity or hard commodity or one particular security because there's a lot of unknowns out there. And right now, I would say that for investors, the time right now is to be heir to the side of more of the conservative and more of the safety. And I think uh, Kevin would agree with that as well, because right now individuals are worried about the fiscal cliff. What is in store for us with any agreement from Congress and the White House? Right now, I would prefer to be in hard assets and basic necessities to be invested in, whether it's equities or other type of investments versus being in growth-oriented investments like technology and internet companies. Caution, I believe, is the watchword because we have seven weeks to get through this mess that we're staring at in Washington. And once that is resolved, one way or the other, we can make the adjustments on our end. It's just the unknown, and that's where you have to have caution. So what are you telling me? Let's say I'm potentially a new client of yours, okay? I'm coming here, and I want to do something with discretionary income. Are you going to tell me to wait? For seven weeks, or are you going to do something with it? Basically, what I start out with is we'll probably split it up into thirds. The precious metals, if you've looked historically, if you look at the last two years, it's been forming a base. August of 2011, gold hit its high at 1923. It's come all the way down to 1500 and change and bounced right back up. And so if you look from the chartist point of view, 
is forming a long base between 1650 and 1725. As you talk to these kind of people that look at charts and understand them or have it, it's a different language, trust me. It is a question of the longer the base and the more stable the base, it's used as a platform to jump higher generally. And so we're looking at that in gold. We're looking at that also in silver. Silver hit its highs in uh, 1st of May 2011 and has been cut in half, has bounced off of that by 10, 15%, and is forming a long stretched out base in this 30, $33 range. And so normally those are lifting points to where they'll climb from there. The longer the base, the longer the run up, how it's been put to me. And so what I'm looking at doing with clients is putting some of their money to work there. I'm looking at energy for two reasons. One, everyone needs energy for a modern society. 100 years ago, you used to be able to shut a building off or you shut your house off. Now, everything runs around the clock. And so we're going to need a certain amount of energy every minute of the day. Does it go along on natural gas? Uh, natural gas is part of that energy. You've got, you know, up until three years ago, uranium was a big deal with nuclear power and everything else. That has all gone to the wayside, especially with the Japanese earthquake last year. But if you look at oil, natural gas, coal's been hit hard, except that 50% of the U.S. power still comes from coal. Those are places I look at, and then the foodstuffs, because even this year, with corn being basically half the crop that they were expecting because of the drought, China's reporting record corn crop this year, but Argentina and Brazil is talking about problems getting the crop in the ground. So there's all kinds of things. We've become a world market, so you have to look at almost everything all the time. It's not just what's going on in the United States Midwest. So my take on it, Ellis, is if you had a choice of stuffing your money in the mattress, putting it in a money market would be something similar because the yield would be virtually nil on cash. And if you could look and buy maybe a treasury bond, a 10-year treasury bond is paying virtually nothing as well. So those are, you know, basically what investors consider safe money. And inflation, if you look at, you know, what real inflation is, what the government reports it is, you know, it's running somewhere, depending upon who you believe, somewhere between 2% and 6%. Your cash is slowly eroding in uh, purchasing power. We talked about that. Kevin mentioned that you go back in um, history and, you know, your dollar is devaluated by 98%. What else can you do but buy things that are real, that are equity-based, and things that derive either their income, all that convertible preferreds, from some natural gas companies, you know, that basically play income and are tied to the base commodity, whether it's energy, food, precious metals, even some precious metals companies pay nice dividends. You get some income versus not getting anything on your cash holdings. But again, I would say the word of caution would be in place. And I do look at precious metals more as insurance, a little different than well, Kevin looks at it, but I see it as insurance against something happening and the continuing debasement of our currency and our dollar. So I see basically that's what I look at precious metals, not necessarily as an investment, but more as an insurance policy against what could happen. So general optimism for your business then in 2013? Yeah, no question about it. And to finish my last thought, and that is we're saving roughly a third of the money in cash or cash positions. So once this argument in Washington is figured out and we know which direction it's going, 
then we'll deploy that money. The key to this deal is, and it goes back to something Jim Dine says a long, long time ago, and that is give me a trend and we can follow it. That's what we need to do. And right now, we're treading water because we don't know what Congress and the president is going to do. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico with Pavlos Panagopoulos and Kevin Hudak of Financial Network. And gentlemen, I really appreciate your being here with me today. Thank you very much for being on the Ellis Martin Report. Thank you, Ellis. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Ellis, thank you very much. And... Um, any questions? That's what we're here for. How do our listeners find you, gentlemen, if they want to get involved? Basically, it's Kevin Hudak. My email address is hudakk at financialnetwork.com. And my phone number is 505-980-2809. And Pavlis? And for me, you can reach me um, toll-free, 1-800-765-4317. You can email me at pavlos, that's P-A-V-L-O-S, at financialnetwork.com. And I also mention that we're on the web. You can go to our website. It's myfinancialsense.com. And you can hear some of our KOB reports and what we were thinking maybe earlier in the year and just see you know, what our philosophy is and if it matches your philosophy and if we could work with you. Financial Network is licensed in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'd uh, love to hear from any of our listeners. And if they have any comments about what we've spoken about today, Ellis, please give us your comments, whether it's a positive or ne- negative. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, theellismartinreport.com. Feel like sharing? Sharing this with your pals. Find these segments on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. The following segment is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the silver guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is themorganreport.com. David, welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you, Ellis. No matter how one wishes the election may have turned out, the fact is that we've had a great four years overall for precious metals. Perhaps we can expect something potentially astronomical during the coming four years. What do you think? Well, I do, and I think it would be true regardless of who's in there. But we are, in my view, nearing the last phase of this major bull market in the precious metals. And this is where, and I'm so fond of saying, where you get 90% of the move in the last 10% of the time. And this is, is something that I think I really need to start emphasizing again. There's a lot of people that are not in this market that wish they had been. They're thinking, looking back, this was under five and gold was in under 300. And they'd probably be willing to get in, you know, looking backwards at, uh, you know, 10 or $15 silver and 500 600 $600 gold. Regardless, the big moves lie ahead in my view. This is how all markets move. The biggest move in the Dow Jones Industrial Average took place in the last six months of time. Same thing with the NASDAQ. It shot up significantly in the last six months during the major bull market. So I expect that in the metals as well. And I really do think that if you got in and you know, the $30 range in silver and somewhere in the uh, $1,700, $1,800 range in gold, you still can see significant gains in real terms moving forward. You say that we're in the last phase of a bull market for precious metals. Does that mean we're now in a bubble, much like the internet bubble of the late 90s and the recent real estate bubble? Well, first of all, let me be clear. I don't think we are in the last phase yet. I think the last phase is coming up. 
and I think we've probably got about four more years, you know, the next term of this presidency, probably within that time frame, I think we will see the ultimate top in the medals. Could be wrong, but I, that's exactly what I see. Will it be a bubble? And the answer to that is possibly. I think that we could see it. I mean, all markets can go undervalued, fair valued, and overvalued. Right now, both gold and silver, silver particularly, are not even fair valued on historical terms. They are, again, silver particularly, are undervalued relative to historical norms. I think we're going to see that, again, take place within the, probably the 2015-2016 time frame, probably about the next time that you really see a lot of campaigning for the next president of the U.S. In that time frame, you'll see these metals just shooting up significantly. Bubble-wise, yes. If you see gold go outside of its traditional purchasing power on a historical basis, for an example, you know, the adage that during Roman times, one ounce of gold by a fine man's toga and sandals and all that, or fine man's suit or whatever, if you can take an ounce of gold and buy, you know, a men's clothing store, then obviously it's clearly overvalued relative to historic terms. And that's what I'm going to do to measure whether or not we're overvalued or undervalued on the metals, because putting it into paper terms could be an absurd way to judge whether or not these metals are overvalued or not, because paper could be depreciated at such a rapid rate at that point in time that it would have no real context. So that's why I'm evaluating the markets or plan to evaluate the markets in the future. At that time, are you going to recommend that people perhaps should let loose of their positions? Well, that is the hardest thing, and of course, I've thought it through, and, you know, subject to change. But again, you know, if these things, if the metals are overvalued, then I would be recommending moving into another asset class at the time. In other words, getting something real, for example, rental real estate or raw land or businesses always make sense if they're businesses that are, you know, doing well. The other options could be in the stock market, depending on, you know, what companies are out there, if they're paying dividends or not, but particularly if they were where you could get solid returns on a solid company. So really, I don't want to be too vague, but I don't want to be too specific either because it's pretty hard. We've never really gone through a monetary experiment where we were in a paper money system where it was a global basis. We've certainly seen it on a nation-state basis time and time again. In fact, in recent times, you know, we've seen Argentina, we've seen Zimbabwe, we've seen several nation-states, and the biggest one nation-state-wise was really the Russia experiment. That was more than just a paper-money experiment. That was primarily you know, central government planning that failed. But I want to stay open-minded, but I also want to give some general outlines here that there are ways to value the metal regardless of what the paper price is. Speaking of devaluation, we've seen a drop-off of about 3% in the Dow since the election. But conversely, gold and silver seem to have held at recent prices as they were before the election. Well, they both got whacked pretty good. I mean, silver and gold went up significantly in a short-term basis, and then they got whacked pretty hard just recently, but they've recovered already somewhat, and I think perhaps the worst short-term basis is behind us. I'm still looking for 35 to $40 silver by the end of the year, and that's only about six weeks away. And in terms of gold, I'm looking at about $1,800 gold, and again, we're a month and a half out from that. Are you looking for buying opportunities right now before January 1st? You know, I think now is a buying opportunity, really. It's really hard to time these markets. I've done quite well. In fact, the position trading that I do and I show to our more advanced service, I've been very successful at that. Not every trade has been a winner, but the ones that have, which are the majority of them, have far exceeded the losers, and, you know, it's done quite well. So I think, yes, we are at a point where the metals are probably not going to see, you know, $26 silver, which was really the low that we've had the most recent time frame in 
roughly 15.50 on gold. I think those are behind us. Don't think that you should really expect to see much of a bargain on silver under the $30 range. I mean, I told everybody, public and private, people that get my private work in the members-only section of the website, $30 silver or lower, buy it, buy it, and buy it. Now, well, there was about a six-month opportunity for that to take place, and I'm sure many of my members did. And now the worst that we've seen on this big sell-off that we saw recently was about to 31, which is obviously above 30. And the point I'm making is I don't think you're going to see $30 silver again. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. And so what's a good buy? Is 32 a good buy? Yeah, I'd say it probably is. I'd say, you know, if we want to project out, I'm saying 35 to 40 by the end of this year. And if that proves true, then anything under 35 uh, on a longer-term paid-for cash-only basis, I'm not going to talk about using leverage here, would be a buy. On the gold side, I'd say anything under 1800 would be a buy. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. Silver has been considered a precious metal for 6,000 years and currency since 600 B.C. It's been commercially mined in Mexico since 1530 in mineral-prolific and mining-friendly Sonora State, where El Tigre Silver Corp.'s 5,000-meter drill program is now underway. El Tigre's properties with gold and silver mining concessions span approximately 267 square miles. With an attractive share structure and a strong, proven management team, El Tigre Silver Corp. is poised to identify a resource in an area that from 1903 to 1938 produced 75 million ounces of silver and 380,000 ounces of gold. Additionally, their tailing stockpile is currently progressing to production. Learn more about El Tigre Silver Corp. by visiting their website, eltigresilvercorp.com, or click through El Tigre's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. And we're back. So for the next year or two, perhaps, anything would possibly be a buy, unless we see a spike. Right. That's the right idea. I mean, you know, as I said, I do position trading, and that can be quite lucrative. It's not with all, you know, it's with money that you allocate to trading. And the beauty about trading is that you can set a limit. I mean, you can say, I'm going to use X amount of money for trading, and that's all I'm going to use, and therefore you can limit your losses. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, the general idea is we're going to have an uptrending market over the next two years, and certainly the metals have a tendency, like any market, particularly silver, to get ahead of itself at times. And then, of course, those are opportunities, depending if you're you know, wise enough or see it and don't get you know, your emotions run away with you, to take advantage of that. And there'll be several of those on the way to the ultimate top. The hardest thing to do is to try to get an ultimate top in any market. It's really difficult. But, you know, I've been there once. And I've called the two large tops so far, the $21 top in silver and the $48 top in silver, both those very accurately. So hopefully, with my skill, luck, uh, whatever you want to call it, I'll be able to get the ultimate top or close to it. And again, it's got to be in real terms, and I also would want very much to offer an exit strategy that would make sense to our members, to the people that pay me for, for the advice that me and my team of researchers provide the Morgan Report. Speaking of the Morgan Report and something considerably more risky than the precious metals themselves, precious metals stocks, gold and silver stocks right now in the juniors. Scary proposition or again a buying opportunity at this moment? Well, both. And just to be clear, we do feature speculations, but we really stress top-tier and mid-tier companies first. But on the speculative side, yeah, there's bargains throughout the sector. 
particularly in the junior space, particularly if you know how to value companies. Exploration companies really can't be valued, so I'm not really talking about that space. I'm talking about junior companies that have merit or can be you know, analyzed in normal metrics where you can find what the asset is and what the peer group would sell for with you know, given ounces in the ground and that type of thing. And we've really been successful there as far as finding bargains that kind of ahead of the herd where we find them before they're very well known whatsoever, which is kind of what you want. You want to buy the, you know, the old adage, buy straw hats in the winter. You want to buy something when no one else is really interested in it, even in the sector. And those opportunities still exist, believe it or not. They're not as easy to find as they were, say, 10 years ago when I was writing the report all by myself. But, you know, I've got two researchers working with me. And between the three of us, we are able to come up with very good opportunities in not only the speculative side, but in some of the mid-tier. And uh, we actually added something to the top tier not that long ago. Let's talk about the variety of services you offer at themorganreport.com. You have a free service and an assortment of paid services. Well, let's go with the free stuff first. You can get on uh, the YouTube channel. Just go to Silver Guru on YouTube. Most of the interviews I do, like this one, get posted. I also have a Twitter feed, which is Silver Guru 22 And the articles that I read, and when we do something that's updated, it usually goes to the blog. That's something I should mention as well. If you go to silver-investor.com, uh, hit the uh, button at the top that says blog. It usually covers almost everything that we're doing for, uh, for free, which is a great deal of interviews and some articles. And then as far as the membership service, the prices are going up at the end of the year. We are offering the opportunity to anyone that wants to pay us to get our best thinking and also the recommendations that we've carefully gone over to lock in the prices that we've had for the past several years and maintain that same level as long as they remain a member. After um, the 22nd of December, the prices will be going up, and it's about a 40% increase across the board. So it's a significant savings if you decide to do it now. And all the same caveats apply. I mean, within the first 30 days, if you don't like it, you'll get your money back. We don't prorate after 30 days. We don't have to by law. Once you're in the membership section, that kind of makes sense because you'll see what kind of information you get. You'll get two back issues, and they're getting enough free reports and research reports that, you know, if you stole it all, you probably have one of the most comprehensive research facilities on the internet regarding mining companies. But uh, anyway, so that's that's the way it stands right now. It's an opportunity for those that really are serious about the sector. I mean, I've always said, and I want to restate and haven't said in a while, that the Morgan Report is not, not for a beginning investor. This is not a financial newsletter that if you're brand new and don't know financial terminology, don't know mining terms, don't understand you know what money supply is or some of these more sophisticated things that a seasoned investor does know, it's not for you. You should start with one of the basic newsletters that's generally a general stock market letter and that type of thing because this report takes a fair degree of sophistication in financial terminology and understanding to be of value. But then you can learn quite a bit from your free service and just listening to these broadcasts. And then at some point in the future, you can get your feet wet. Absolutely. And, you know, I've had college students to subscribe, and, you know, I never discourage anybody. I mean, if they want to, uh, it might take a little more work, but it really doesn't. I mean, we do not try to talk over anyone's head. That's not the point. What, what, you know, what purpose would that serve? We usually talk in, you know, very common sense language, but there are, you know, certain terminologies that are required in the mining sector that you can't, you know, substitute without using the right, you know, the terms. But we even show a glossary in there. We used to, I think it's still there. And if not, with the Google search engine, you find a word you don't understand or a term you don't understand. I mean, Google it, and within a minute or two, you'll know what it is. So yeah, I'm not trying to say that you have to be super sophisticated 
to understand our work. That's not the case at all. But all I am stating is that it's something that, uh, one, you have to have a passion for. You really want to have to make money. You want to really be serious about the sector. And you really want to understand that, you know, what you're getting is the way that I have found over four decades of being in this in the sector, the best, most efficient way to make money, balancing risk and reward. The problem is people don't necessarily follow what I do, and that's not my fault. It's basically theirs. If they put big money in the big companies, medium-sized money in medium-sized companies in the speculative section, they speculate. They put in money they can afford to lose. They're going to do fantastic. But if they break the rules and put gobs of money into some recommendation in the speculative side and don't spread out into the you know eight or ten that we offer, and that one goes south, then is it really my fault? No. No, because when they get on the membership side of the website, they really could or should read how to use the Morgan Report before they do anything. And if they read that and understand the philosophy and why it works, they have a clear understanding that they can definitely do as well or perhaps even better than most investors in this sector. I've been speaking with David Morgan. The website is themorganreport.com. David, once again, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. It's always a pleasure, Alice. Thank you. This segment has been sponsored by El Tigre Silver Corp trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ELS.V and on the OTCQX as EGRTF. El Tigre Silver Corp. is focused on silver exploration and development in prolific Sonora State, Mexico. Find them on the web at eltigresilvercorp.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.